you're brought up in a real Catholic home, my mother went to Mass every morning, and we had fish on Fridays because you weren't going to eat meat. And on Good Friday at 3 o'clock, I had to sit quietly in a chair for an hour while Jesus suffered on the cross. And if you're brought up in a family like that, if you walked into our front door, there was a picture of Christ facing you as you walked in. It, you know, it's, you were just sort of advertising that you're the house where fun comes to die. Um, <laughs> Welcome to Ye Gods. I'm Scott Carter, and I am very grateful to know Patricia Heaton, her husband Dave, and their four sons. Our families were neighbors when she had just been cast in a little show called Everybody Loves Raymond. You may have heard of it. And my wife and I had recently moved to Los Angeles from New York with Politically Incorrect. She matched nine seasons of Raymond, for which she won two Emmys, with nine of the middle, which puts her in a very exclusive circle of TV stars with back-to-back hits. Not only that, but this is the kind of friend that she is. She got me into an eight-year gospel study class at Hollywood Presbyterian Church. I'd had this long, gestating, vague notion of a play about the Gospels. And by her getting me into this class, she got the play written and produced and published. And Patty, it is a delight to see you. Scott, that's such a lovely introduction. And um, oh, wow, I, I was never going to take credit for your lovely play, but now I will. <laughs> As you should, but but I will tell you, you will get no royalties. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you and Dave and Bibi and I had dinner about 10 days ago for the first time in years. And you mentioned how everything in your life has changed Yes. in the last year or so. And I said, let's not talk about that now. I want to talk about that when we're doing this podcast. So what exactly are the components of that change, and what do you like most about about the new life? So many things, I think, as you mentioned in your lovely introduction, that nine years back to back, you know, 18 solid years of working and raising my kids, both full-time jobs, both jobs afforded me to be with my kids pretty much full-time. So I had a very structured, scheduled life. And I had just enough breaks over the summer uh, on Everybody Loves Raymond. We got every fourth week off. So, you know, we just, it was a wonderful time to be able to work and raise the kids. And I I did one, another show uh, after the middle, it was only lasted a year called Carol Second Act. So that didn't, didn't work. Um, And suddenly I didn't have a job. Uh, The kids were all out of the house. And so everything that, identified me as a valuable human being on this planet was gone. And and yet, everything that anchored me to this planet outside of my marriage um, had disappeared. And, and that's a really interesting and uncomfortable place to be. And around the same time, I decided to stop drinking, and I thought I would lean into this discomfort I felt like I'm just going, I, I have how, how many years left on the planet? Who knows? I'm going to lean into whatever the planet is sending me. 
And so it's, and I, so I was in this place of discomfort and I thought, I'm going to lean into the discomfort. I'm going to lean into it. I'm going to experience it. I want it. You know, what's great as an actor is everything you go through is usable. So everything has purpose and, and meaning for you. And then you just have to hope somebody hires you and you can use those feelings. But um, the other big thing that happened was we moved to Nashville. We realized we're working out of the state a lot. So we didn't have to be in California. And uh, we were looking to downsize anyway. We thought, let's just downsize to Nashville. Our oldest son was living there. My sister, who's a nun, her convent is there. So we moved. And so that was another whole thing of um, being pulled out of everything I knew for 32 years. So everything was gone. And all the distractions were stripped away. I had an opportunity to think about God more and start to have the kind of prayer life I knew I always should have had, needed, but never was able to find the time to just quiet down in in the midst of all that work and kids and all that stuff. And so I started every day reading and praying. I made a commitment to reading the Bible every day for the first time in my life to read the Bible cover to cover. First time in my life. It's not that unusual because I was raised Catholic. So um, <clears throat> it's just now Catholics are coming around to maybe taking a look at it. <laughs> you can say I, that I as guess. a Catholic. I, I would not say that. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so so that is just opened me up to the ha, ha, spending that time in more meditation and prayer and reading scripture has made God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit more real to me. And I am more aware of the actual presence of the Holy Spirit in my life. And it's it, the Holy Spirit has always been there. I just haven't been paying attention. And now I have time to pay attention. I want to unpack some of the different components of what you have just talked about. So one of the first ones I want to get to is the notion of sobriety. Yeah. And you and I both realized that we had been sober for, with me, was four years at Christmas. I remember you being a delightful social drinker, <laughs> but I never remember you having an issue. And for me, I do not have an addictive personality. For me, it was a decision of thinking I had a limited number of years of vitality left. Yes, me too. And, and so I wanted to accomplish a couple more things. There were a couple more plays I wanted to write or a couple more things I wanted to do like this podcast. And so I just thought, uh, if I keep going with my social drinking, it robs like an hour here, an hour there. Yes, I totally agree with you. That was part of my thinking, but there was an added element, which is I would wake up in the morning thinking, do I have a lunch today that I could have a drink at? Or do we have a dinner tonight where I can have a bourbon old fashioned? Like I started thinking about it a lot and that alarmed me. And I'd pour myself a glass of wine while I cooked dinner, pour some more wine while I ate dinner, pour some more wine while I cleaned up and poured some more wine while we watched TV. And by the end of the night, almost the whole bottle was gone. And I'm only 5'2". I'm small. And I drank the whole thing. And I just thought, this is getting out of hand. And we have alcoholism in my family. And so that was the added thing. 
Um, or there one more element. My boys are in their 20s. Only the youngest has a girlfriend. It'll be a minimum, if we're lucky, of 10 years before we see a grandchild. That puts me at 74. And so, as you said, I want my brain to be functioning at the best level it can be. And adding alcohol to that mix is not useful. I've always heard the phrase, alcoholism is a progressive disease. Yes. I came from the world of stand-up, where oh. I saw a lot of careers compromised, people who had wonderful talent, but your office that you worked in was a bar, and the <laughs> drinks were free, yes. and you're just there every night, and here's the deal. You come off stage, and if it was terrible, you want to have a drink, mm -hmm. and if it was great. You, you want to have, have a drink. More and drink. sometimes just because it's Friday or it's Saturday. <laughs> or Thursday. Or Thursday. It really doesn't matter. And and you want to have a drink. And so I always had a sense of avoiding that. Every movie where there was a problem drinker in the movie, whether <laughs> it was uh, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn mm. or whether it was Leaving Las Vegas or whatever, yes. I've always held those images in my head as I don't want to be that guy. Yes. And I think you see it once you quit, you see it more and more. You're more aware of it around you and people around you and in social situations too. It's, it's uh, really eye-opening. We would have a little party every night uh, on Friday nights after a real-time taping and all the guests would be there. And as when I told myself, you know, I'm just going to stop drinking. Uh, it was Christmas. So when the show resumed the next season in January, I just didn't do. Uh, what I found was people seemed not so entertaining as they used to be. <laughs> yeah. And I found myself leaving an hour earlier. Yes. And I got reinforced by waking up on Saturday morning and feeling like I had a longer weekend in front of me. Right. Well, you know, we did the same thing with uh, Everybody Loves Raymond. After taping, we would all go out and have drinks together. And Peter Boyle had been sober for many years at that point. And I said to him, how do you come down off of a taping uh, and not go have a drink? And he said, I just picture taking the first drink and then picture the second and the third. And I just walk it through in my mind. And by the time I've thought about it long enough, a, the impulse is gone, but B, I also realize I don't want to be at that third or fourth drink because I know what happens. And I always kept that in my mind. And I, I've used that when there's a, a temptation to I just think about it. I think about the first drink and the second drink and then wake up in the middle of the night sweating and then feeling crappy in the morning. And it works. I actually stopped drinking before the pandemic. Thank God, because if I, if I had been drinking... When that crap came down, I would have been cracking a bottle open at noon. Yeah, because all yeah. we did was we watched all of the Sopranos over again. I think all of the Wire, all of Breaking Bad, and I went to and for a break, I watched all of the Great British Bake Off. But you know, you just want to drink. Thank goodness I did, I wasn't drinking then because I would have been a mess. So besides the Peter Boyle quote that stayed with you, was there anything else? I'll tell you exactly what made me stop. God is so gracious. And there was a point where I realized I'm thinking about alcohol all the time. I'm thinking about when can I have a drink and still not and not look like an alcoholic. And I just said in my mind, Lord, I, I really I want to stop drinking. I want to stop. I am never going to be able to do it. You will have to do it for me. 
And that was it. Within 48 hours, Sam had invited us over to his house to to have dinner and play a board game with a bunch of his young friends. So I got a couple bottles of wine, went over there. We, again, drank while we were cooking, drank while we were eating, drank while we cleaned up, drank while we were playing this board game. It was myself, three of my sons, and then 10 other of their friends. And I felt completely lucid. At that point, I probably had had five glasses of red wine, but it was over a couple of hours. And I felt completely lucid. And I'm making a joke at the head of the table in front of all these young men. And I say, you know, in our family, it's a tradition. And I could not pronounce the word tradition. And I tried three times and I mispronounced Mm. it every time in front of all these kids. And Dan, at the end of the table, my youngest, says, oh, that's great, mom. You can't even talk. And (laughs) the thing I fear the most in life is public humiliation, particularly in front of my kids. And I, there were a couple things that happened in that moment. I thought, oh my gosh, I've embarrassed myself in front of my sons and their friends. But the second thing was, what just happened in my brain? What misfire of a synapse cause that like the alcohol is doing something even when i feel completely lucid the alcohol is damaging my brain and it was god's great gift he knew what to do to answer my prayer which included me being humiliated in front of my kids yeah. you know there's a there's a scripture that said the lord disciplines those he loves and i was i sometimes think Lord, could you love me a little bit less? Just a little less. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But that night was the last night I took a drink. Congratulations. Thank you. In in reading up prior to this conversation, one of the most touching things that I read was a valentine that your dad, who was a sports writer, wrote in Cleveland Magazine after you won your second Emmy. And what struck me, and doesn't seem like a lot of the families I know, he seemed um, more proud of your faith than your success, Hmm. but also um, very often I will observe families, and and I know you lost your mother when you were very young, Hmm. but a lot of the families that I've observed, the mother is the driver of the religious protocol for the family. And very often the dad is the grumpy go along guy, but not the force. Reading this tribute to you uh, made me think for the first time how committed of a Catholic he was. Yeah, he was. And and so I want you to tell me about your household growing up. If you're brought up in a real Catholic home, my mother went to mass every morning and we had fish on Fridays because you weren't going to eat meat and on Good Friday at three o'clock, I had to sit quietly in a chair for an hour while Jesus suffered on the cross. And if you're brought up in a family like that, if you walked into our front door, there was a picture of Christ facing you as you walked in. It, you know, it, you were just sort of advertising that you're the house where fun comes to die. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but actually, it was, it was quite, I mean, we were, were Irish too. So, of course, there was a lot of humor. But if you're like, Catholic, that becomes your culture. And there's all kinds of rituals and things that you perform. So it gives you somewhat of an identity and a little bit of separation from the rest of the world, right? 
which is what you're supposed to be as a Christian anyway. You're supposed to be a little in it, but not of it. I had a mini rebellion early on in the 70s when the Jesus revolution kind of sprung out. In, and I don't know if, that, if you remember that, if, you, if that touched you at all, but a bunch of Jesus freaks moved into our little hometown and rented a house. And they were kind of working in the neighborhood. They were trying to kind of, you know, be a part of the community so that they could spread the gospel, right? And I remember them in the shopping mall. There was a group of them yelling at women for not wearing skirts and for wearing pants. That that was a more aggressive type. I went to what I thought was like a dance, a student dance at the Episcopal Church with my friend. And we got there. It turned out to be a Jesus freak meeting. And we were kind of giggling and laughing because we'd never seen anybody waving their hands around and saying praise of the Lord and speaking in tongues. And then we went up for the altar call just for fun. And they laid hands on us. And I had this like experience, like a like my body started vibrating. And I went wow. home and I and I told my very Catholic mother that received the Eucharist every day that she needs to meet Jesus. Oh. <laughs> so my my rebellion was telling my mother that she wasn't Christian enough. Well, so, I, I remember that phase. Um, and I always thought the Jesus freaks got the malls and the Hare Krishnas got the airports. And and also that every person my age who became a Jesus freak had been the people who had been always trying to get me to try more drugs a year before, (laughs) and now they were trying to get me saved. And I remember thinking, your personality is exactly the same. You've just changed your manias. You have switched, (laughs) you've traded out one mania for the other, and the other part was, and this is a guy thing, is that women I was interested in seemed to, there was a time when three or four in a row, seemed to have recently had this revelation about a higher calling to Jesus at, at, at an inconvenient <laughs> time for my romantic interest in them. <laughs> right, right. And I, and I felt yeah, the like, brides of and I felt are not like, going to be uh, as interested in Scott Carter. <laughs> yeah, and I felt like uh, Jesus is Mister Buzzkill to me, and he's not he's not helping he's not helping me right now. What is the greatest time in your life where that faith was tested? Well, I think it's you when you see really heinous things like these terrible shootings of children in schools. They're unfathomable, and you you just have to, you do look to God and say, how did you allow that? How did you allow that? Um, it's a struggle, I think, for all people of faith when you, you believe that God is in control, and yet we have free will. So how do you reconcile those two things when you see the war in Ukraine, when you see an earthquake in Turkey, and my initial response is, why God? Why? Why would you allow that? On the other hand, the existence of God means that that's not the end of that terrible thing that happened, that there will be justice, because God is a God of justice and mercy, and that's important, but he is a God of justice. But if if God doesn't exist, then all those terrible things that happen are just random things, and people are just going to randomly suffer, and that's it. 
When I go to visit Africa with World Vision and you see people in northern Kenya who are going through a famine and there's, you know, you try to do everything that you can, but you're only going to be able to help so many people and there will be people who die from this famine. Their famine's been in Yemen for a long time and children are dying constantly there. And if there was no God, if there, if I didn't believe that those, that's not the end of those kids' lives, if they're going to live in joy with, with their creator and that those parents who are suffering in grief, that if I didn't believe they weren't going to be reun, that they were going to be reunited with their children again, I don't think I could go on. It would be, it would be too horrible. Life would be too horrible. So um, I think whenever I have that big why in my mind, the bigger background of that is thank goodness God exists and that all will be well. All will be well. And all will be well indeed, as St. Teresa said. Um, and, and so I don't look at me to I provide <laughs> the attribution <laughs> because you're you're going past my level of knowledge. Yeah. But, but but that's but, my yes, but so that's that's what anytime I have doubts, my my need to know that this is not the end and that the suffering will be answered with joy keeps me going in my faith. I know for myself, before I had a, a near-death asthma attack in 1987, I would be interested in talking to people the way that I'm interested in talking to you now. I've never had a doubt of the existence of God for myself. Mm. I have only had periods of thinking, I don't deserve any grace whatsoever. I yes. am, that I am not worthy. I have that. I never have a thought that, and while I love and admire Jesus, I also find comfort in Lao Tzu, the Tao Te Ching, or since the pandemic, I've been taking an online course in the Torah. Um, I love learning about more things, but a lot of what I learn reinforces other things that I learned. But my question is, have you over the years become more accepting of I'm going to put this truth out for <laughs> for someone who I think would be would benefit by it but I can also understand it may not take the the beauty of getting older is that you just relax your rigidity and you as a christian you I realize it, the holy spirit is the one doing the work I I can just show up and and be present for someone be kind offer solace if that's required, uh, offer kindness. You know, for me, when you, you just mentioned that, you know, you think Jesus is a good person, but also, or you admire him, and but you the, these other people that you admire. The, the difference about Jesus, it's the whole question of sin. This is the issue. It's sin. Because other prophets or philosophers or methods of being don't address the forgiveness and a repentance of sin. And I think of myself as a quote-unquote good person. And, you know, the Bible says there's nobody good. And that is always brought home to me. There's nobody good. And I'm, I'm one of them. And thank God for Jesus because he forgives me. He shows me my faults and gives me the, but this is the other thing. He doesn't leave you there. He gives you the power through his Holy Spirit to recognize his voice and hear where you're going wrong and change yourself let you allow the Holy Spirit to change you. And I think when you said, you know, what what has, what's one of the biggest changes? I think in in my prayer life and my awareness of the Holy Spirit has just grown because all the things that were distracting me have been taken out of my life for the time being. And I have to tell you this story. 
I was reading the book of John in the last chapter. Jesus has risen. He's on the beach with the apostles. Now, they've watched him be crucified. They, They were hiding in the upper room. They are scared out of their minds. And here comes Jesus. He's risen. It's the thing they hoped for. He's on the beach with them. And Peter says, I'll follow, I'll follow you anywhere. You're, I, I'm going to be with you for the rest of my life. And Jesus says, you know, you're going to die a terrible death. Basically, he says this to, to Peter. And instead of Peter, who's now looking at his risen Savior, all, all his dreams have come true. You know, everything that Jesus said came true. Instead of saying to Jesus, I don't care. Kill me seven ways to sundown. I will follow you. He, you know what he does? They wrote this in scripture. He turns and points to John and he says, what about him? And, and I, I don't know. I, I'm sure I've read the book of John before. I never seen that. And I started laughing. I'm like, this sounds like a, a, an episode of Everybody Loves Raymond, where Ray and Robert, you know, Robert turns and says to Ray, what about him? And I, and I thought, why? I started laughing. I This like, giggle kept coming up inside of me. And I was laughing and laughing. And then, Scott, it turned into weeping. And I started weeping. And I, I, in my mind, I'm going, what is going on inside of me? What's happening? Why am I weeping? And this answer came into my head and it said, it wasn't an audible voice. It's just the answer was, you're weeping because it's true. This story is true. Because you would never, if you're making up a religion, put in these really faulty, terrible guys who who have the risen Christ. You wouldn't even have Christ on the beach eating fish with them. Christ would have come back on a horse with flames coming out of its nostrils and a sword in his hand. No, Christ shows up on the beach and is like, oh, can I have some fish too? And then they have this conversation. And then Peter was like looking at John going like, wait, not him, just me? What about him? And and what was really interesting is John doesn't get off clean in this because it's John writing the gospel. So when Peter turns to John and points the finger at him and says, what about him? You know John is thinking, all right, I'm going to write this down. I'm going to out Peter. <laughs> Everybody's going to know Peter. This Peter's will be in the jerk. memoir. Yeah, this will be in my memoir. Peter jerk. So I realized, like, this has to be true because you wouldn't put it in a book otherwise because it's sort of damning of everyone. And I never had these experiences, Scott. I, you know, all my evangelical friends of the Lord is constantly speaking to them. This never happens to me. And I was just sitting in my kitchen. Dave was in the other room. He doesn't even know this is going on. I'm laughing. I'm weeping. You know, and by the time I finished, he like he comes out. It's like, what's up? I'm like, nothing. What are you doing? But I had this whole experience. So um, that's the difference for me is, you know, when people say, yeah, I, I admire Jesus. There's a whole other element of of the reality of his life and and what his death and resurrection mean for us in eternity. Well, I'm exceedingly grateful to to the specificity of this account that you just gave because I think if this podcast has a surface, it's people describing step by step the components of a belief and every conversation so far has been different but one person talked about um about being in liberal household and atheists 
and yet wanting to go to Easter because she got a new dress and she wanted to show off the dress <laughs> and then joining a church group. But she talks about going from not believing in God to believing in general higher power to going to generally the notion of, I guess I identified the Christian and I did go to churches at a certain stage. And then she talks about getting from there to now she self-identifies as Christian and accepts Jesus as Lord and Savior and talks about the meaning of the resurrection. I am not there yet. In the same way that before I had this near-death experience and didn't believe in God at all, I still wanted to engage people who were in a different place than I was. Well, what I find interesting about you, Scott, is you stuck with that Bible study at First Presbyterian of Hollywood for years longer than we did. Oh, I, oh, I know, I know. I, I got mean, to the end you, of the eight years. Yeah. Yes, I mean, you know, and I, I remember when we just had dinner recently. I was thinking, um, well, I wonder. I, I think I asked you at the dinner, so have you become a Christian yet? Because you're constantly pursuing the question. I don't call myself a Christian, but very often for the last, since I've known you, find myself on a Sunday in a church. Although lately I had a church I stopped going to. And what I do now on Sunday mornings is I make 10 sack lunches and take them to a food bank up the street. And while I'm doing that, I will listen to something that is inspiring to me mm -hmm. or, or something for me to think about. Um, here's the last thing I want to ask you. Okay. Okay. You wake up one morning. Mm -hmm. You have been elected by unanimous consent of the entire world. For the very first time in human mm -hmm. history, everyone agrees on one thing. They want you to be the benevolent dictator of the planet for a day. Mm -hmm. And you and you have one ceremonial duty, and you are going to recommend that everyone on earth experience some work of art. This can be a song, it could be a painting, it could be a play, it could be a book, but something that has had a tremendous impact on you that you think that it would be helpful to them, what would that be? I was just on a plane listening to Leontine Price sing Puccini, and that you know, that is the most current thing in my mind that is so astonishing. But I have this movie um, and I love movies and I love acting and I think it's the perfect movie and it embodies sort of everything that we've been talking about today. And many people have seen it, but many people surprisingly and some actors I know have not seen it, which is a crime. And it's called On the Waterfront with Marlon Brando, Eva Marie Saint and Carl Malden a priest who's standing in the loading dock over the dead body of a, of a dock worker and give a speech that's the most astonishing speech you'll ever hear in a movie about Christ is right here on the dock with you. And he sees you struggling and he sees the guys in the cashmere coats taking all the money and he sees you. It's the most astonishing speech ever written, I think, in a movie or one of the most. And not only is there that element to it, but the journey that Marlon Brando's character takes from going along with the crowd, just taking the little crumbs off this corrupt table that his brother is giving him, who's in the mob. And he takes this journey and he decides to do the right thing at great cost to himself. So he, he is kind of a Christ figure in this movie. 
So not only is this story really profound, but it is one of the most beautifully acted, beautifully directed. The music by Elmer Bernstein is just haunting and superb. And I just think it's one of the greatest films ever made. And it just resonates even today. That is a wonderful answer. A year from now, I want to do part two of this. Okay. Because... Because I want to follow up on some of the points you're making. Right now, I just want to hear what these things are. But I want to be also honest about where I have agreements and disagreements. My goal is not to try to change anybody's mind, but it's to air out differences of perception and experience so that listeners have a sense of options. Yes, I am so interested in everyone's spiritual journey because at the end of the day, and maybe this is because my mother died when I was young, so I was sort of like forced into thinking about our mortality uh, at a very early age. And I think the great thing about Catholicism is it sets you up for knowing from the get-go that life is difficult and you're going to be disappointed and you're going to suffer. It makes life so much easier when you know that that's the deal then everything that's great that comes along is just like cake, right? But I think that, you, you know, this, this podcast is going to be of great service to get us all talking again and not putting each other in political boxes or, or religious boxes and, and really listening and loving each other. From your mouth. <laughs> yes, yes, to whoever's ears. <laughs> I end each show with a sermonette that I call In My Homily Opinion. May the spirit, holy or un, move you to email me at egodspodcast at gmail.com that we may start a dialogue. F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote that of all natural forces, vitality is the incommunicable one. I would add to that spirituality. One person's life-changing, born-again event is another's eye-roll and big yawn. Some ideas speak to us, some never will. And some are like the book that gathers dust on a shelf for a decade, and then one night we binge it from cover to cover. It's why it's good to keep in touch with friends, new and old. We don't know when they might have something to say to us that we should hear. In developing this podcast, I assumed that the interviews would be unrelated to the sermonettes. But my wise producer said no, each episode should have one focus like a short story or a one-act play. So now I listen to the conversation's first edit so it may inspire the subject of a homily. But this week, before I could review Patty's chat, she texted me an article by English author Paul Kingsnorth. It charted his spiritual journey from teen prankster to Christian by way of environmental activism, Zen Buddhism, and briefly witchcraft. Then she sent a Substack interview with him, which I started listening to, and it led me to a 2014 profile in the New York Times magazine. So quickly, I'd gone from knowing nothing about Paul Kingsnorth to having a bluffer's grasp of his thoughts and deeds. Some of them resonated for me. Others did not. But that's not the point. When a friend sends you something about someone else, they are in fact sending you something about themselves. It's a sacred offer to be honored. 
I care less about Kingsnorth than I care that Patty cares about him. And I hope to talk to her about Kingsnorth when next my path crosses with my ex-neighbors. And then I will thank her in person for the conversation that we just shared, how losing our identity anchors can teach us to lean in to the uncomfortable and sail forth. Let me know how you push yourself past the gauntlet of the awkward by emailing me at yegodspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and catch you next time.